Hey everybody, let me remind you one more time about my new blueprint for success. It's a project I've spent months and months working on just to help you jumpstart your comedy career and beat the competition. Whether you want to do stand-up, sketch, improv, acting, writing, producing, directing, radio, social media influencing, or even if you want a career behind the scenes as a manager or agent, Blueprint for Success will give you all the tools you need to take your career to the highest levels. With exclusive interviews, my top 50 commercial-free episodes from Industry Standard, one-on-one -on -one coaching with me, and unprecedented access into my knowledge and experience from over 40 years in this crazy business. I guarantee you that with Blueprint for Success, you'll become the creator you've always dreamed of becoming. No one's asking me to do this. I want to do it because I want to help you become truly undeniable. So just go to barrycats.com, click on Blueprint for Success, and start your incredible journey today. I truly can't wait to work with you to help you change the trajectory of your comedy career forever. Mentalism, there's few and far between. When you said it, there's not a household name. It's because it takes such creativity to create new tricks and new things that are unique and capture the public's imagination. So to answer, if I have enough time, with some of these appearances, they call you and they're like, hey, can you come on in three days? I'm only human. I'm like, yes, I say yes to everything. I'll say no to some things, but with TV, tomorrow I might never get a call for the rest of my life. I'll be picky, but for certain national appearances, I'll go on because I want to be the go-to guy. I want them to know, hey, we need someone. He's always going to deliver and he's going to do a great job. Hey everybody, welcome to another episode of Industry Standard with me, Barry Katz. Glad to have you here. Hope you've been having a great, great time this year. Hope you had a great Easter. I'm excited about my episodes this week, part one and part two with Ois Perlman. This guy is very different from any kind of artist that I've ever interviewed before. And I know you're going to see why and find him incredibly powerful and inspirational. Before I get started, if you need to reach me, you can do so on Instagram or Twitter at Barry Katz or on my website, barrycats.com. And without further ado, let me introduce my guest today. I know you're going to love this episode. Oz Perlman is a world-class entertainer. Born in Israel and raised in Michigan, he started developing an interest for magic at a very young age, leading him to a lifelong career full of it. He saw his first magician at age 13 on a cruise ship, and by the age of 14, he landed his first steady gig at a local Italian restaurant in Farmington Hills, Michigan, and discovered his passion, which he never let go of. His unique blend of mentalism and mind reading create an interactive experience that is redefining the nature of a magic show, one that truly needs to be seen to be believed. Owes was featured on America's Got Talent, where he captivated the country with his mentalism routines and quickly became a fan favorite, finishing in third place. He's also appeared on such prestigious shows as The Tonight Show with Jimmy Fallon, The Today Show, and ABC World News, and has been profiled in Forbes Magazine and the New York Times. His most recent appearance on The Ellen Show was groundbreaking. 
in addition to being an incredible performer, always has another passion and career. He's an avid marathon and ultra-marathon runner, having completed races such as the Badwater 135 Miler, the Western States 100, Spartathlon, and the mother of all, Hawaii's Ironman World Championships. Throughout his journey, he has won dozens of races throughout the country. Even more unbelievable is the fact that he has a marathon best time of 2 hours and 23 minutes and 52 seconds. If you know anything about these races, it's just unbelievably extraordinary that he could have a career in magic and mentalism and be able to be so great at this as well. Additionally, he's made numerous instructional video tutorials while working for retailer and prestigious distributor Penguin Magic. One of his releases, entitled Born to Perform Card Magic, sold over 100,000 copies, and the ratings were among the highest in the history of the magic supplier. Oz's corporate client performances include a who's who list of politicians, professional athletes, A-list celebrities, and Fortune 500 company CEOs. Most recently, Oz, better known as Oz the Mentalist, ran a world record 19 loops of Central Park, 116 miles in a single day to break the Central Park running record. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome the multi-talented performer and a man with apparently 0% body fat. Please welcome, what an honor, Oz Perlman. What an Oz. honor for me, Barry Katz. I've been a long time listener. I'm a huge fan of this podcast. I'm putting that out there. Wow. Yeah. That's shocking. You I have swear. Too much time on your hands. Tell me about it. Too much time on my hands. I'm out running a lot and I'm listening to you, running for my problems, I guess. Listening to great content. I love this show. How do you discover it? You know, that's really funny. I love comedians. You know how they always say movie stars wish they were rock stars? Rock stars wish they were movie stars? I wish I was a comedian. Comedy is the purest art form, I think. You go up, you have a microphone, that's it. So I'm a mentalist. I don't have as many props. It's not quite like a magician, but I still have a crutch, right? I have to do a little something. I've just always loved comedians. I love everything about it. And so I've always wanted to hear comedians speak, hear their thought processes, how they do what they do. And so I just stumbled upon some comedians, all different people. I'm a huge fan of Gary Gullman is one of them. Mike Vecchione. I mean, some of the big names, Sebastian Maniscalco, I've done some gigs with. I love that guy. I've heard your Kevin Hart, Bill Burr, you name it. And so I just listened to all of their interviews because I find it fascinating. And I think that's how I stumbled upon yours. And it's great stuff. But you are funny. I've got some shtick. I like it. I mean, I incorporate comedy into what I do. Because if you could read minds, think about it. If you could really read minds, that's the creepiest thing in the world, right? I don't want somebody rooting around in my head. So you need to decide your character. In my profession, you're either a little creepy. And at the end of the show, everyone just says, oh, you know, they want to stay away. Or you're the guy they want to have a beer with. I strive to be likable in a way that at the end of the show, you think, I wish I could do that. I want it to be a skill that you feel you could have figured out how to do yourself. I'm really fascinated about the mentalism profession. Yeah. Because I would be really, really anxious if I was heading into a profession where there's only been one household name in over a century. Even, I don't even know if it's one household name, to be honest. One household name. Who's that? The amazing Kreskin. So that's funny. So that's if you're of a certain generation and he is legendary, of course. If you know Carson, I mean, but if you ask somebody 
I'd say anybody under the age of 35, they're probably not going to know who Kreskin is. So it almost comes down to, they might say Darren Brown if they know UK-based. I would say it's the opposite. It's like opportunity. It's like buying crypto, right? There's a niche that's there to be filled. You can't be the next David Blaine. You can't be the next Chris Angel. So you got to decide, can you be the next this? And so, listen, I'm, I'm going after it, but it's trying to become a household name at this craft because it's one of those things that almost needs to be experienced. It doesn't translate as well over TV and certain mediums because it's so easy to go, oh, that's fake. It's all set up. So the toughest part is showing the authenticity, showing true, real reactions out of people that you're blown away, but there's nothing like experiencing it close up and personal. The number one comment I get from people is, I, I hate magic, but I love what you just did. I strive for that. Not for people to hate magic, but it's defined very differently than what they've ever thought of as magic. Because a lot of people are like, ah, I don't want to be fooled. If it becomes a challenge of, am I smarter than you? Are you smarter than me? I don't know how you did that. I hate that. That's not what I'm all about. I'm about entertaining with some sort of a mystique where you never get a sense of wonder anymore. Just think about it. You're on your phone. You're doing this. You're doing that. When do you ever, it's cliche, but feel like a kid again? Like, oh my God, how did that happen? And so if I can do that, it's very fulfilling. One of the things about you, I've always been fascinated by what you do. You have this kind of mixture, if you don't mind me saying, you have a little bit of the devil in you <laughs> and you have a little bit of that lovable angel. Right. And they're smashed together and it's like you're pushing the devil down, but there's little tinges of it that come out that you give to the audience or the television audience or the television host. Is that a conscious decision? I don't know. I never thought about it that way, but I like it. I like that there's a little edge to me. I don't know if it's conscious. I think that I'm constantly trying to reverse engineer people's brain, right? Think of it as a Rubik's cube. I've got to find the way to solve it. And my whole profession is knowing how you think so I can anticipate things before you think about them. You know what I mean? So it's a very unique trade where it's kind of like juggling while you're at a car. Everything is happening and it can only, you can only practice comedy in front of an audience. Does that, you know what I'm saying? You can't sit and tell jokes in front of a mirror. It's not like juggling, it's not like magic. Mentalism is identical. I cannot practice my show at home. I can't do it. I literally have to go out there and see what bombs, what sticks, what doesn't. And so what you're seeing a lot of the time that you would probably call the devil is me being excited because I legitimately don't know if something's gonna work. And I'm not saying that to BS your fluffy, like dead serious. I did a big TV show today. You asked me before I got here, did you know if it was gonna work? No. And so what you're seeing on camera is legitimately the excitement and the rush of not knowing will this work. But I remember in terms of magic, Chris Angel's first television show of his series. And I remember Lance Burton was a special guest and he was doing something way up high on a crane where he was falling through the thing. And I remember seeing Lance's face and I remember calling Lance and I said, Lance, I hope this doesn't sound insulting, but you're not really a spectacular actor. And it felt to me like you were genuinely scared that this guy was going to die. Right. And he said, Barry, I was. It's like he doesn't prepare enough and we didn't go over rehearsal enough. And he's up there and he's doing it like the way he's doing it literally for the first time with very little practice or rehearsal, exactly the way it is. And he could have died. Now, I find it hard to believe that you're going on the Ellen show, <laughs> yeah. traveling across the country with the knowledge in your heart that I could fail. What would be the point of going across the country 
and doing a national television show live to tape and then calling up afterwards saying, please don't use that. Right. So I think it's like a big swing, right? If you're taking a big swing, you're going for a home run, you're not going for a single. So there's certain shows where I'll dial it in and I'll do things that I would call a single or a double, but few and far between. Because if I don't get excited by it, why do I need to do it, right? If somebody's already done this, then why do I do it again? What's it going to do for my career? Generally speaking, not much. So with things like this, I dream up an idea. I dreamed this up two years ago. Kids don't talk about doubles hitters. Yeah, it's true. Baseball right? fan don't, don't talk about You want the Barry Bonds it. and Sammy Sosa's if I'm dating myself here. Yeah, exactly. You want so that big. Why, why would you? Sorry, I'm going to go toe to toe with you. Why would you commit to doing a show where you're doing doubles? So I think that that comes down to the amount of time. Let's say you're doing a live TV spot, it's three minutes. I don't have the real estate to do what I would describe a grand production piece. Does that make sense? It needs build. It's like a joke. I can't tell you the best joke of your life in 30 seconds. I can't do it. I don't get time to do the setup. I don't have a punchline. I need to take you on a three act play. I need to build. Everything I ever do has builds. The first thing, I get your attention. I do something incredible in under 30 seconds where you go, who is this guy? All right, so let's let's analyze this for yep. a second. You gotta ask yourself why things are going well. Things are going better than they were before because you're doing a television show, America's Got Talent, where there's 10 to 20 million people watching each night. Right. It's less than three minutes. That's right, the first acts are. Yeah. Then they get longer. Not significantly right. longer. So you have to ask yourself, based on what you're saying, how is it possible for you to keep winning? If you're saying oh. you're just not hitting home runs when you're doing shorter sets. Oh, well, so I've had the good fortune of doing nearly 100 TV appearances. And once you're able, there's just no way to, if you're getting some of these shows on such a consistent basis, again, my single or double, I'm a harsh critic. Some other people would have said they loved it. Do you know what I mean? Like I'm usually saying that based on the fact that I always want original content because I don't want the same clip in my sizzle reel. If I'm making a reel and edited clip, I don't need to do the same trick four times on four different shows. It's kind of like telling the same joke four times. It's boring. So the same thing here, I always want to do something new and original and fresh. And mentalism is de facto a one trick pony. You're reading someone's mind, right? You're either reading their mind or putting a thought in their mind. So it comes down to how do you dress that in a way that makes it entertaining and different every time? Because the same skill in magic, there's a hundred things you can do. You can float, you can make things change, up here, disappear. There's a whole book devoted to all the different kinds of magic tricks there are. With mentalism, there's few and far between. When you said it, there's not a household name, it's because it takes such creativity to create new tricks and new things that are unique and capture the public's imagination. So to answer, if I have enough time, with some of these appearances, they call you and they're like, hey, can you come on in three days? I'm only human. I'm like, yes, I say yes to everything. I'll say no to some things, but with TV, tomorrow I might never get a call for the rest of my life. I'll be picky, but for certain national appearances, I'll go on because I want to be the go-to guy. I want them to know, hey, we need someone. He's always going to deliver and he's going to do a great job. Let's talk about the art of mentalism. Sure. Okay. You're the first mentalist I've ever had on. Love it. Thank and you. I don't have a lot of magicians on. I've only had David Copperfield. And I love listening Trent. to it. So He's an interesting guy. Copperfield, man. Legend. When I think about magic, I think about Copperfield. There's certain things that he does that I told him that I don't really understand. Like, I don't understand why there's this 47 minute bit on aliens that's like a movie. Right. And then there's a duck in a barrel or there's a floating rose. My whole argument is you're David Copperfield. Why are you doing the floating rose? And his argument is, hey, I need a transition here. 
it's a trick that sort of has been done by certain people who've created the trick and they've sold it to me, but it's a trick that brings the women in it brings the men in and it's important and it sets me up for the bigger things that I've done that nobody else has done. Right. When it comes to mentalism, how do you avoid somebody stealing from you? There's no easy way to some degree. If you can create original content, if you can create things that are unique to you, honestly, I think most of us are doing very similar things. It's your spin on it, right? I don't know what you want to call it, the X factor, the charisma. For me, it's kind of the schmooze factor. There's a guy that I know named Ken Weber. He's written books on performance within the magic community. He gave me a very nice compliment in one of his books. He goes, I'm the most present performer he's ever seen. When I'm performing, everything I'm taking in and I'm riffing. It's almost like doing crowd work. My show is nothing but crowd work. I will pivot on a dime for whatever's happening. I will take in what the audience gives me if it's gold and give it back. I've seen performers that are very stiff and they're performing a script. I feel like I'm watching somebody who's doing the same thing every time. Do you understand? If I feel like if I saw them tomorrow, I'd be seeing the exact same thing. I've had the good fortune of I've had people that watch my show three, four, five nights in a row. To me, it seems like cruel and unusual punishment. I ask them genuinely, I'm like, how can you keep watching this? They go, because I love watching because it's different every time. And it's the biggest compliment I can get because that's what I'm trying to do. I want to be in the moment. It's kind of like the death of me if I get bored of my own show. When that happens, I always create new tricks, new things, new spins. I don't know. That's I, It's kind of like tagging something. I always create new tags. I'm always changing it. But at the end of the day, someone can steal what they do. If you do it on TV, what's to stop someone from doing it? So the only thing that stops it for me is I can do a lot of things. I've had the good fortune that fool other people in my industry. People look at me and go, I don't know how you did that, which is great. But then there's things, other fast company. There's not that many of us. That's the other big thing. You said you haven't had a mentalist because there's not that many mentalists because it's a weird profession. It's very niche. It's become a little hotter over the last 10 years, but it's a lot of people that say they're a mentalist, but they're really a magician. But then they do a little mentalism because most people start doing mentalism because it packs flat. I can go do five shows in five days, boom, 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 with the smallest little briefcase you've ever seen in your life. If they lose my luggage, which they don't lose because I don't check bags, but if they lost my luggage, I can show up, take me to Staples, I am the act, Barry, not the tricks. Do you see what I'm saying? I show up, go to Staples, get me 50 bucks worth of materials, get me a marker, get me a pad, get me this. I can do a show for an hour for 10,000 people. So like that's the same thing as comedians. I am the act, not the props. When you're doing a trick, for instance, let's say a magician is doing the cutting in half. Thing. Sure. Okay. So there's certain steps that need to be taken within that performance. Right. Don't cut the woman in half completely. Like keep, leave her alive. Yeah, no, of There's course. these steps. And in some magic tricks, there could be only two steps or three steps right. to a simple trick. And then other magic tricks, there could be 10 to 20 steps. In mentalism, what's the least amount of steps that you have in your mind that you have to accomplish to make it successful? And what's the most for something you've done? It's the opposite of what you think, if this makes sense. So there's a trick I do. Literally, I just walk up to somebody and I say, think of a number. I get a piece of paper, I write it down, I put it in their hand and say, what's the number? Boom, they turn it over, it's right. It sounds like the simplest thing in the world. It's kind of like a chef who wants to make the perfect marinara or the perfect sushi. Do you ever see that I Dream of Hero? Do you ever see that sushi movie? No. Where the guy's been making sushi as this small Michelin star restaurant in Tokyo, so we gotta watch it. It's Hero, Hero Dreams of Sushi, J-I-R-O. This guy's been doing the same thing for 60 years just to perfect the simple craft of just putting a fish on a piece of rice with seaweed. So the same thing applies here where that has taken years. I've done that trick more than I've done anything in my life. 
thousands and thousands and thousands of times. Every show I do it at least 10 times, multiply that by a couple hundred shows a year times 20 years. Do you see what I'm saying? It's the thing I've done the most to make it seem the simplest. So a trick like that seems like there's one step. I wrote down a number, what's done? What's so difficult? That has so many steps. There's other tricks that seem more complex that are very easy. There's no easy answer for you because so much of what happens in mentalism is the same as a director in a movie, right? The net is you wanna fool people, but is it? I don't always wanna fool people. I prefer for people to feel like they know a little bit of how I did something because then you've hooked them. The worst thing that can happen in my show is apathy. You know, you watch a movie, you leave the theater, two minutes later, you forgot the movie. What happened? I don't remember. That's death to me. If you leave my show and you didn't remember it, that's the worst thing that you can ever say. If you leave my show and you know how I did everything, I love that better because that means you were engaged. And if you cut some of this stuff, that's the best because now you're hooked. Now in a year, you're still gonna remember me and be talking about me. Even if you don't remember my name, you're gonna remember that guy. I hope you remember my name. But that's what I focus on, being memorable. That's the most important thing in my profession. Will you remember me? And what will you say to the next person you see like me? Whenever someone says, oh my God, I saw this guy, my ears perk up, I go, tell me what you remember. Because all I care about was what you remember, not what I do, I create memories. And I've sculpted the way that people remember things because you think your memory is infallible and it's not. I can change your memories of what you see and remember. That's my whole job. That's what I strive. For you to remember the things I do in a certain way because being fooled is secondary. You will be fooled if I'm doing my job right. It's how do you remember it and tell other people. So we've all experienced failure. Yeah. And we've all experienced success. Tell us what happens when you fail. Does the audience always know when you're failing and can you recover? You know how a comedian can sort of flub a line, but he right. can recover and still kill? Yeah. Or a singer can maybe miss a line, but they can still kill or a drummer can miss his cue. What happens to you when you've lost your way and does the audience know that you've recovered and can you recover? That reminds me of the Jim Gaffigan where he has the inner voice where a joke is bomb. He goes, wow, that really wasn't funny. Like I just love, I've opened for him a couple of times and I love Jim. So the difference between comedy and mentalism, just I keep harking on it because like my favorite thing is in comedy, if the joke fails, right, you flopped. So in mentalism, think of it as a director's cut in a movie. So in a lot of instances, if I set up the premise as, hey, think of this, I'm gonna guess this, applause then I've set up a situation where I can very easily fail. It's very easy, it's a very two plus two equals four. But what if that's not the way the premise is set up? What if there's multiple paths and routes? You don't know where I'm going with what I'm doing. But you do. I do, exactly right. So we set something up, we don't know where it's gonna go, but it's just like a movie with an alternate ending. To answer your question, in the vast majority of instances, many performers can fail. I set up most of the things I do in a way that you don't know if I failed. And in certain places, the failure is an even greater success. So in my show, I can sometimes get something right, or sometimes it seems like I'm about to get it wrong, and I say, you know what, change your mind right now, because you could hire a different guy who could just guess stuff. Maybe they get it lucky. What if right now you change to a different thing? Now everybody in this room knows it's not set up. How could I know something you didn't even know? And then I'll guess that. Now in reality, trust me, I was about to fail, but I've shifted, I've kind of changed where the goal line is. I've changed where the touchdown was first and goal. Now it's first and 20, but I'm gonna get there. So have I failed? Absolutely. When I fail, I try to learn how to do better the next time. And then there's certain paths where there's nothing you can do. I had a Zoom show recently where 
I've done a couple hundred of these Zoom shows. This one trick, this finale just never fails. And even when it does, I have backup, backup, backup. And this one just didn't work, didn't work, didn't work. I'm at the end, just sitting there with nothing. And it's just like you transition. You say, listen, if I got it right every time, it'd be a magic show. And, and people like the fact that, wow, it doesn't always work. It makes it more exciting in a way. In certain instances, it's kind of like when you walk across a trapeze and if the guy never just goes across super easy, you go, I could do that. That looks easy, right? It's like when you watch the figure skaters. Until you go out and try doing it and try and do barely a somersault, land on your butt, you can barely skate. It looks easy when somebody does something effortlessly. But if you give a little bit of danger, you're on the trapeze and the guy shakes and goes to one side, you go, oh, you feel it in your stomach. You feel the danger. I like for people to feel the danger. I don't want to get everything right in a show. So at the end of that show. Oh man, brutal. No, but... <laughs> But you have the opportunity at the end of the show to say, obviously what you did, look, it doesn't always go right, right. but I want to leave you with something really special. But you seem to indicate that you just ended the show there. Why would you end the show there? I, I didn't want to, but so this is a second kicker. So imagine like a band comes out, no band is ever coming out for the encore and doing the song from the new album. You know what I'm saying? They're doing the greatest hits. Journey's coming back for Don't Stop Believing. So in this case, I had already hit them hard. Everything builds before this. So trust me when I tell you, I didn't want to end on a lower note, like where I was up, 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 and then down, but I've already used up my time. I can't extend beyond a certain point. Like that was the end of the show. I've even gone a little over because I've done a big second finale and the second finale didn't hit as strong. So I'm kind of, I'm out of steam a little bit. If it was a live show, I think there would have been more likely I would have done something on virtual. You have constraints within the technical media. Like literally people have another meeting right now. So it is what it is, you know? And what do you do on a television set that's live when that happens? It's happened so few and far between. I think it's force of will. Like I have a force of will that is relentless. Like when you said the devil in me, I've had things like that happen. I had a Today Show appearance where right in the moment, I'm seeing a clock that's ticking down. It's live TV. In 25 seconds, this is over. They're going to close. My huge moment is coming and I'm doing everything I can. And I don't know, my brain goes into hyperdrive. And that's where all the little skills and tools that I've developed over two decades of doing this come into play. You think fast and you make things happen. So I don't know. If you told me beforehand, what would you have done? I would have said, I'd be SOL. But in the moment, I find a way to make it work. And so far it's gone well. I'm a real optimist. I'm overconfident prior to things happening. And if I wasn't, it wouldn't work. My actual confidence exudes into with other people. I know it sounds silly. I don't believe in energy and things like that, but literally I can overwhelm other people in the moment to make what I do work. And it's truly the case. I'm not BSing you. It's not mentalism. It's knowing how people think and being able to influence them in such a way that you make it happen. Hey, everybody. I hope you're enjoying this episode as much as I am. If you made it this far and you haven't fallen asleep yet, then you must be the type of person who's serious about having a career in the comedy business. That's why I'm offering you my Blueprint for Success, a one-of-a-kind all-access pass into my knowledge and experience after over 40 years of working with the best of the best in this crazy entertainment industry. I'll tell you all the stories, all the philosophies, give you all the great special guests, and even give you one-on-one -on -one private consultations to help you expand, enhance, and skyrocket your comedy career. Just go to barrycats.com and click on Blueprint for Success to learn more about my groundbreaking digital academy that I've created just for you. With it, we can take your career so far that one day, instead of listening to this podcast, you'll be interviewed on it.
And one of the things that blows me away about you, obviously the preparation that it takes to be great in mentalism is really challenging. If it wasn't challenging, there'd be thousands and thousands of mentalists. There's not. Yeah. And there's also no household name female magicians. Yeah, that's that's wild. I just don't understand that. I can't, I, I don't know why. So do you know why there's so few mentalists? Because on TV, mentalism is not visual. Mentalism, you have to make it visual. But what I loved about Kreskin, right? which a lot of people might not remember or know him, it wasn't the mentalism that I loved. It was the theatrics of him losing his mind that it was all going to fall apart. It really looked like he was going to implode every time. Right. And that's what the show was. The show was, I'm going to fail. He'd start off with the things that he had confidence in, and then he'd go a little bit harder and a little bit harder. And the last one, you didn't know if it was going to happen or not, according to his body language and the acting. Right. But what is it? What do you, you think? You get emotionally invested, right? You get excited, but... Why are there no household names? I think potentially no TV exec has really gone for it as strongly or else they'd really push it because there's been but some But you've been people... on television more than Kreskin. I, that's not true. Kreskin was on Carson, I don't know, like 89 times maybe. Mm -hmm. Incredible, but that, that's Carson. That's Also think about it, the reach of network television 30 years ago. If you're on Carson, you get put on the couch, your life changes overnight for people. So I think there's nothing like that nowadays. The closest parables, if you're a massive influencer on social media, and even then each category is so niche. I don't even think if you got a national TV series anymore, if that would do anything on network station, it would be great for your bookings, but I don't know that that would propel you to worldwide fame. Everything's changing so quickly. One of the things I think about you a lot, I always come back to one thing with you, and I don't know why I'm an instinct person. Right? I want to hear it. It has nothing to do with necessarily television appearances or whatever, but to me, I visualize you on Broadway. Wow. With your own show, and it's a show that has a name to it. It grabs you, and everybody knows the name, and everybody talks about the name. And I see you making it a huge impact, but in a regular space, or like a residency to a lesser extent. I don't see the residency in Vegas as much as I see the Broadway thing, because I think that you have this New York feel to you. For sure. One of the things that blows me away about you is that not only are you married and trying to be in a situation through work where you keep a healthy and happy relationship and you're working hard on your craft to be innovative and create new things and you're training for the New York City Marathon, which you came in 32nd out of... 33rd. 33rd out of how many people? I don't know, 30,000 maybe? 30,000. Yeah. And you ran a time. Most important, fastest Jew. Barry, that's all that counts. Fastest Jew. Fastest Jew in history? <laughs> I think I think that was that was a joke I used to use in my show because one year I was 35th. And I always say all that matters, I was fastest Jew. I checked all the names. This year, true story, I think there was one guy, faster Jew, second fastest Jew this year. But anyway, I got to check his mother's births, you know, uh, but no. Um, now, I mean. I love that. I love running. That's you, my joy. But you ran it in two hours, two hours and 29, and 29 minutes. minutes. Yeah. Is that your fastest time ever? No, no. I ran a, a 223 
before I had kids about six years ago. I was still a young strapping man, but I'm coming up on 40 soon. And we'll see once you hit 40, you're actually in the master's division. And I could, I don't think from a body perspective, I can still be as fast. It's mostly the training that goes into it is very limiting in terms of your lifestyle, family. And talk and about it. You're, you got to be healthy with your food. You're taking care time. of your family, yep. wife and kids, three kids, three kids. And you're training also to be the best mentalist in the world. So how many miles a week do you have to run? I was running 135 miles a week. How many hours of a commitment is that? That's about two and a half to three hours a day. And you don't take a day off? I didn't take a day off for about seven weeks before this. The hardest part was honestly the diet because I lost 13 pounds and no alcohol, no fried foods, pretty much nothing that's not worth living for. So by the end, after the race, all I want to do is eat and drink, right? Are but, you in pain when you finish? No, I feel like a million bucks. It's the top of the You're world. You're not even tired. For a few minutes, but I've run much further. So a marathon, I don't know if you know what an ultra marathon is. It's kind of like no. longer races. So a race that's a hundred miles, 150 miles. Like I've run in Greece, I ran 153 miles at once. That wasn't like over days. That was just go. You ran 153 miles. <laughs> In how much time? 33 hours. And how many times did you stop? Let's not get into the major details, but you've got to stop for number two. That was not very few times, but number one, you can run and pee. That's, I'm a man, I can do that. I literally on the side of a mountain in Greece, ran up to this aid station where this woman's wearing a hat, like a little headlamp at two in the morning. And I say to her, wake me up in five minutes. She speaks Greek. I just wait five minutes. I literally fall down on the rocks on the side of the road. She taps me one second later. I didn't even know I was out cold before my head even hit the gravel. It was five minutes. I wake up, I start running again. <laughs> I wish they could see the look on your face right now. Barry just wants to ask why. 150 you know, miles. Yeah, I did one in Death Valley. This is called the world's toughest foot race called Badwater. You run from Death Valley, the lowest place on earth, to Mount Whitney. It's 135 miles. The temperature at the start of the race was 125 degrees Fahrenheit. It's so hot that if you don't run on the white line on the side of the road, if you crack an egg on the road, the road is almost 200 degrees. It will fry an egg because it's the ambient heat off the black on the asphalt. You asked me why did I run so I could finish, which doesn't sound logical, but once you do that, everything else in life seems easy. Do you know what I mean? Like there's nothing when you tell me when I'm going to go on a show like this and you go, but you're doing this, you're doing, I'm like, this is easy. I could go run right now for 24 hours. Right now, literally I could leave Malibu and I could run for 24 hours. So that's not hard. You know, doing the TV stuff is gravy. When did you start running? I used to work on Wall Street. I went for a day job, the normal type of you know, nine to five, nine to six. I was bored out of my mind. I said, this is life. Now, again, these are good first world problems to have. I had a great paying job. Things are good, but I was bored. I just thought like there has to be more. And I came from a person who's competitive. Like I need something in my calendar to look forward to a goal or I kind of go crazy. So my older sister ran a marathon. She's eight years older than me. I was not going to be outdone. And this is in 2004. Not everyone was running marathons. Now it's commonplace. So I signed up on a whim. I go, I'm going to run a marathon too. I did it. I wasn't very good. It was miserable. I suffered, but I was hooked. So I realized I like suffering. So then I've been doing this for like 17 years now. I just, I never stopped. I love it. Does your wife run? No, we've gone running together twice. I think we almost called the divorce attorney the second time. She's like, I'm not running with you. <laughs> I'm not, she didn't think I was a pleasant person. I was like, come on, you can do this. Like I'm trying to be motivational. She's just like, I'm not running. She works out. She's very athletic. But she does all these classes, spin classes, CrossFit, circuit training, all these other SLTs. She does a ton of classes. She does stuff that I can't do. Like I go in there with her. I have no muscles. My muscles are in my legs. You start having me lift weights. She makes fun of me. I can barely lift anything. I tell her I just need muscles in my legs to go fast. It's amazing because you rarely know of 
any performers in the industry who actually work out like that. You probably put more hours into working out than any human being in the entertainment business. Performers have a very destructive side and a very obsessive side, I found, right? So the obsessive side can go into healthy or not healthy. Like maybe you're going out and partying after every night because you finish a gig and it's like anything. It's like if you did music at the end of the night, if I'm doing a show for a thousand people at the end of that show, I feel like a million bucks. I'm not a mortician. People are happy at the end of what I do. So you leave the event, you're on cloud nine. It's like 11 PM. What am I gonna do? I can't unwind. So I try to be healthier. Like the next morning, boom, wake up early, go run. And that's how I expend the energy. Otherwise I think it would be more destructive. How old are your kids? One, three, and five. It's the best. That's the one thing about COVID is you can't really say silver linings. I mean, so many people have died. It's horrendous what it's done in every sense. If you're lucky enough that you've been able to maintain a profession, put food on the table during it, which I'm very blessed to have been able to do. I got into the Zoom shows and virtual very early and it took off like crazy, but I'm just with them all the time. The month before COVID hit, I was gone 21 nights. 21 nights, gone. And then after that, I'm home every day. Tell our audience the typical kind of venue that you work at and how you go about doing what you're doing. Because I think a lot of people don't understand the performing arts circuit. The lifestyle? There's a whole different area that is utilized by magicians that's not really utilized by comedians, which are these performing arts theaters that have their circulation and their subscriptions and they book people all over. They have their own network, but I think it would be interesting to tell people about it and how it works. So I was on America's Got Talent. That blew up my career. Like overnight, I became from a local guy who did tons of bar and bat mitzvahs, which surprisingly are very lucrative in the tri-state area of New York because these people spend more money on bar mitzvahs than most people in the country spent on a wedding times five. And Perlman, clearly, you know, Roman Catholic over here, like I was the guy. Jews like other Jews, I don't know why, but I do a lot of bar and bat mitzvahs. I was doing 120 to 150 bar mitzvahs a year. There was not, when my wife met me, the odds of us having a Saturday together are unreal, unreal. If I have two Saturdays with her a year, that's unbelievable. Because I'm working every Saturday afternoon, every Saturday night doing bridal showers. Like I was a private party guy corporates here and there. Corporates are the bigger money because when you're spending your own money, you know, me, myself included, I'm going to like nickel and dime. Like how much am I going to spend on entertainment? When you're spending corporate dollars, you have a budget. The budget has to get spent. So it's a very different beast. Then also putting butts in seats where you're selling tickets. That's also a very different beast. I learned early on after America's Got Talent, when I went on that show, my niche is corporate. My background is corporate. I have the look. I know the terminology. In many of the industries that I'm very well known for, which is insurance, financial services, Wall Street, hedge funds, private equity firms, VCs, I could work at these companies. I don't mean that in a like airy fairy way. I literally know the business models. When I go in and talk to some of these people, they're shell-shocked. They're like, how do you know this much? Because I study them. This is what I do for fun, finance and things of that sort. So I've become the guy for those because I can customize the content in a way that others can't. They can come to a generic mind reading show. I can do a show that inside out knows your strategies for investing, plays off of it in my mind reading. So when your team leaves, they can't stop talking about it. I might've missed your comment, but most of my things to answer your question are one-nighters. I carved out a niche where on AGT, they took me as the guy who worked on Wall Street, quit his job, Jewish mother was downtrodden. How are you doing this to the family? And went for my dream, which is true. The day after I quit my job, everybody thought I was nuts. You got a paycheck and now you're waking up and what do you do in the morning? Nobody calls me and says, I'm going to make you a star. 
No, Barry Katz called me and said, I'm going to take you, you and Dane Cook, Madison Square Garden together. You got to make shit happen. Barry, why don't you make some deals happen? I no, did kidding. call you. He did call me. So, so truth be told, I decided my path was the corporate market versus the touring market, which say what you will of it, maybe in one day I'll switch and swap to what you said, a Broadway show or a residency, build my public following. But it's shocking how many people that you don't realize, they're slightly kind of under the radar folks who are doing exceptionally well, who just like a Dana Carvey, for example. I just remember hearing a Dana Carvey interview and I always thought, what happened to Dana Carvey? Everyone thinks that Dana Carvey blew up. He's the go-to guy for every corporate event. A, probably making umpteen more money than he could ever make doing the movies over and over, probably living a great lifestyle where he goes and knocks out 10 of these a month. Instead of being on the road, he's 20 nights a month. I don't know. I don't know his life story, but he decided to go a certain path that allows you, I guess, to be with your family more, to do what you like to do. I enjoy to some degree just knowing that I'm with a different crowd in a different place all the time. I would love to do the Broadway thing that's on my bucket list, but I bet you I'll get restless being at the same theater night in, night out. Like when I see a Copperfield, I just feel like, I don't know. I really like different energy at every places and being at these different venues, doing a performing arts center here, doing a big gala here, doing a big fundraiser, doing a sales meeting. At one point in life, it might change. The tempo, the rhythms, the not wanting to fly. That's what generally happens. At a certain point, you're over it. I just think the biggest thing, the conversation that I have with you and that I've had with your wife and you is that I always try to look at somebody's career, pardon the mind reading reference, where I'm trying to figure out if they had all the money in the world and the health of themselves and their family, but they had to work 50 hours a week doing something that they loved. You know, what would they do? And what they normally say is similar to what you say. But the difference is, is that the way your career is built Here's where you jump over the table and you strangle me. <laughs> You're highly successful, but it's built on a cracked foundation. And the cracked foundation is when you do corporate gigs and you do private gigs and you do the Zoom shows and you do the performing art theaters, you're not a hard ticket guy. Right. And the greatest artist in the world, and you can name anybody on your top 10 list, are hard ticket guys. Right. People where their audiences follow them from the little clubs to the television appearance to the performing arts centers, the corporate gigs, and then they pay money for their shows, they pay money for their merch, they pay money for their movies, they pay money streaming for their television shows. And you're one of the most successful people I know. I loved talking to you and your wife because it was like talking to Herb from accounting and his partner at the firm. It's like you guys have a feeling for everything that's going on, what's coming on, what's going to come on. But the money is coming from other people who are just throwing it out there and you're just taking a piece of it instead of creating your own audience that spends money for you. Right. Building a following, creating yeah. equity rather than. And so my whole argument going again, toe to toe with you and probably your family is that it's always hard to have a conversation with a guy who is in the fucking stratosphere. The money you make is you're in the top 1% of people in the world, maybe the top 4%, yet you don't have 
your own hard ticket thing for sake of argument. I put Chris Angel up on sale at the Peoria, Illinois Civic Center. He's going to sell. Yeah, of course. Yeah, household name. Yeah, he's going to sell. But there's a lot of other artists and bands and comedians and magicians that aren't household names that sell hard tickets. And so here I am. When I look at you, I see a guy who has this thing that's so special. I mean, so special. You're like a human holy shit moment highlight film. You think so? Yes. Wow, thank you. So you got that going for you. But what you don't do, which shocks me, you get these gigs sometimes. They fall into your lap. Hey, can you do the Zoom show for 10 grand? Oh, you mean I can sit in my underwear and do the show for 10 grand? Yeah. Okay. What's your commission? You take that much, huh? Okay, so I make 8000 to seventh, whatever. Yet, you know, those gigs that fall on your lap, you don't take that and say, okay, I'm going to put this in a kitty where this is the money that's being used to hire the greatest experts in the world, the O's Perlmans of social media, the O's Perlmans of marketing, the O's Perlmans of building a hard ticket following. Right. The people behind the curtain, like the wizard and the Wizard of Oz. And it's like, well, fuck, I did six shows this year where they just fell in my lap. I didn't work hard for them. I just did them in my house. Why don't I just take this money? And that's my budget for creating hard ticket. And so then we're going to do our first test. Okay, our first test six months from now, our goal is, okay, we're going to do a show and let's see my followers. Okay, that's weird. I have the most followers in Dallas, Texas. Okay, so let's put up a show for sale in Dallas, Texas. Okay. And let's go for that and promote that and put it together and market it. Let's see what happens in that one thing. And they're like, oh, well, this went really well. Okay, what's my second best city? Minneapolis? All right, let's figure out a venue in Minneapolis. Let's rent it. Let's do this. Let's put the tickets on sale and let's go. And to me, that will change your life forever because no one has to know what you're doing. No one in the world needs to know. You're just doing your thing on the side. If it doesn't work, what's the worst thing that happens? You're Nothing. exactly the same as you are now, making a shitload of money, running marathons, having a successful marriage and a great family. Finding great people is the hardest part, right? People that know how to do that, put that together and do it effectively. You're a great person. People find you. Oh, right. But that's kind of like, how do you create a good team around you? That's a very difficult, like the things you just said, finding the person with social, the person with the experience with theaters. I mean, that's always what I've tried to do with artists. It's all about instinct. You, you know, think like, it would take off. You think that the, uh, the hard ticket sales and starting to do theater, that it translates. The things that I'm doing in these other markets, when people see it for themselves, they're going to become fans. They're going to want to start buying tickets, start touring kind of the same way. I mean, I heard you talk to Kevin Hart, the way they methodically built his following. They didn't jump to bigger theaters until they had just absolutely crushing clubs. Then before they go from theaters to arenas, they just did it in a very strategic way where they built up over the course of years yeah. a following. And one of the things you could do that you won't like this, but okay, so let's say you don't want to make that jump like that. So then what you do is, okay, let's see. Hmm. These are my best markets. Okay, there's an improv there. Uh, the Creek and Cave is in Austin. I don't know what kind of venue that is, but let's take a look at it. Who's worked there? Hmm. Okay, good people work there. I haven't really heard of that venue, but this person's working there. 
And then what I normally do is I will call those places and I'll say, listen, you don't know what this guy can do, whatever. Just give me the door. You take the bar and food. And then there'll be a juggling about what the percentage might be. But it's like, you don't have to believe in this person. Let's just try one night. And then you're in a situation where you're doing the hard ticket, but a percentage of the show could be people that are going to come anyway to a show. Right. So it's not as daunting. And the comedy, you won't make as much money. And the comedy clubs don't give a shit because even if you sold out and it was packed to the gills, they'll look at me and they'll say, Barry, I I still don't care. I mean, this is one 365th of my business. Right. Do you think I give a shit that this guy sold that one? But then you do your thing like I tell performers to do. You go in, you tip out all the waitresses, you buy them food at the end, and then they always love you. And then you go back for a better deal. And then before you know it, you're going back for the whole weekend. And before you know it, you're actually building your comedy chops as well because you're getting psyched up that you're going into these venues that are normally for comedians. Or you can do it the other way. But the thing is, is that you're an amazing guy. You got so many things going for you, but you've already done the corporate. You've already done the performing arts. Those are, they're always going to be there. Right. Even if you do the other thing, you're still going to get those gigs until you say, you know what? I don't want to do that one. What? How dare you turn down $25,000 from IBM? Look, I'm sorry you can't make your $5,000 commission and whatever else you're skimming. But, you know, I just, I want to concentrate on this. And that's when they offer you more money or when you say no. But the point being is that part of my strategy when I was talking to you and thinking about it was that what can you do that can create a destiny for yourself where you're in control and General Mills isn't in control? Thousand Oaks Performing Arts Theater isn't in control. You're in control of your own destiny. and Right, that is the case, yeah. And you're the kind of guy that you know what it's like to train for that day. You're training for that day when you run the marathon. You're training 135 miles a week. You're training two and a half hours a day. You're training for your profession. And you're like an amazing entrepreneur. You blow me away. And you have a family. And you have a a wife that presumably wants your attention I most do <laughs> so there's a lot going on but you're a guy who i think could change the face of parts of the entertainment world and every time you're on television a part of you realizes hey i'm moving up in the business but in essence you're not moving up because there's nowhere to bring your audience sure i i 100 know what you mean So when you do Ellen and she's on there, the perfect opportunity. Hey, you can catch O's Perlman at the Houston Theater for whatever tickets. You can buy them on O'sPerlman.com. Check them out. You'd be sold out that day. Right. But you lose that opportunity every time. And then your fame goes into just the Ethernet. Yes, people know you, and yes, it's important to be seen by millions of people, and yes, it's important for Ellen to say, you're unbelievable, come back. It's a wasted opportunity. How do you harness that momentum? 100%. So in the past, I've had like a residency in New York. It's exactly what you said. It's to try to start building the following, and also it's almost like a snake that eats its own tail. To get press and to get publicity, you have to have something to plug, something to publicize. Nobody wants to hear 
well, where do we see you? We don't. It doesn't make sense. So no, I'm 100% on board with what you're saying. I understand that 100% to have not only cultural relevance, but to build a following, that people see you and go, you're not going to believe what this guy did. It was unbelievable. Where can I see him? You got to have a place to see him. So yeah, I'm with you. I mean, we've discussed that in the past. And it's like you said, to some degree, there is that difficulty of it's an investment in the future. You're taking something away because some of these dates and you decide I'm going to invest in a future that I hope is going to build. And that's when we always talk about you and I, when we do talk, it's almost like a fear of investing in yourself. Right. It's fear of taking away the golden goose and saying, well, well, like what's already working very well. It also comes down in a big degree is I wonder how many parallels there are. This is way too niche of a conversation, I think, for the No, it's listener. not niche. No. This is what makes this uh, so great is that- But who would you describe as having a similar parallel? Like I can tell you one person that I know in our industry who blew up, who's a good friend is Justin Willman. Do you know Justin? Incredible performer. Amazing. Just I love Justin. Amazing. So funny. So authentic. Love that guy. And, and all his great choice of material, both on his TV show, Magic for Humans, had three seasons, in his live show, which I've seen. Killer. Just killer through and through. And I think exactly like what you said, your model of like, hey, we're going to start touring. And Justin can get corporates up the wazoo said, I'm going to start touring comedy clubs. And you're probably doing a comedy club for, forget the money from it. You're losing money, but you're also, you're building from nothing to get bigger and bigger, get theaters. And what's the end goal? Is the end goal a year from now, three years, five years, 10 years, what is the end goal that you're building? What's the snowball going to grow to with the momentum at the bottom? Like, where are you going with it in our industry? Because comedy is different. Where aren't you going? You think that that feeds into everything no, you're doing? No. It only Where aren't you going if you don't do it? Where aren't you going? What can go wrong? It doesn't work. Oh, so you lose some money that you made on these gigs that you probably wouldn't even have had to begin with. You know, something happened with Justin Willman. You just reminded me. I would have a lot of those conversations with him about that I'm having now with you. I, I really didn't realize that until right now. Oh, yeah. I had the same conversations because I'm so curious because it's like a fork in the road where you decide which way you want to go. And I would almost say we had very similar forks. Of course, I've never had a Netflix, like a, a major streaming special that gives you that level of worldwide fame. Like he's created... Once you have the streaming, he was still doing hard ticket sales before that. Even before that, exactly. Building, he building, was building into it. And so I personally don't, and I think I, he's not here to say this. I don't think that his Netflix special or whatever did as much for him on Netflix as it did for, insert name here, Burt Kreischer. But it's a different lane, and people don't tend to rally around magic as much on television and the networks hate magic right i don't know what's wrong with I, these network presidents they just don't like magic it's i've pitched so many and it's like with great ideas too where you go in you know i don't want to tap myself on the shoulder but some of these pitches i'm telling you i leave the room everyone is shell-shocked because it's incredible in person like a lot of these things when you're in person well, it's shocking but the end question is always the same thing it's well how do we put this on tv Right. That's what you hear them say. How do we put this on TV? How does it translate what you just experienced, the feeling when you were there yourself, right? When it's happening to you, it's very different than when it's happening to someone on TV. Music connects with you regardless. Comedy connects with you regardless. This is a very personal thing. But I think about this a lot that there is a television show to be had with you. Maybe, just maybe, you don't have the right hook to the tv show just I'm yet. working on it absolutely but i think once you do i think people will love you and you're really accessible and you have so much charisma and then you you, you you utilize the relationships that you had in these hundred television shows 
And maybe that's who you're not going out to. Maybe you're not going to Ellen's production company like you should be and say, hey, listen, I want to pick. Maybe you're not going to the people who maybe have the pods who can help you get in. Granted, you're going to have to give up 50% of your money. But one of the conversations I had with another artist who shall remain nameless, which was fascinating, does a lot of shows and he does a lot of motivational speaking, which are not hard ticket sales. He's comedic, but he does motivational speaking. And he turned down $160,000 last year of gigs. And he's working on something right now where he needs a lawyer. He needs a surgical specialist that's a lawyer in a certain part of the entertainment profession. The guy's eight seventy-five an hour. And he says to me, I don't know if I can win this thing. I mean, it's a you know, it might be a long shot. I don't want to spend eight seventy-five an hour. No, sounds like a nightmare. But I didn't say that to him. I said, wait a second. You turned down $160,000 this year. Why is it okay to turn down $160,000, but a lawyer charges eight seventy-five, dollars and even if it costs you $20,000, why does that even bother you? Wow, I got to spend $20,000 on a lawyer? Well, you just spent $160,000 not doing anything. Wait, why do you turn down the shows? Why does anybody turn down a show? Well, People I don't turn down shows all the time because they just don't want to do it. They don't feel like it. Really? Oh my God. I mean, there's artists I know that I work with that turn down $3 million in shows a year. That are just from a work ethic perspective. They just didn't want to go do that just one. Just don't want to get on a plane and do it. No, that's not my issue. <laughs> that's, a, that's a lot of people's issues. Not mine. My issue is almost the opposite is that I want to work too much because I have, you know, I don't know what the condition is called, but I assume the opposite of you. I assume the phone is going to stop ringing any minute. And that's the end of this because this is a dream career. It's shocking to me that anybody pays for me to do what I do. But apparently, you know, that, that's a very lucky problem to have that it is a profession. You can do it. And it's a supply and demand curve. Like I've been told before, I remember doing an event for all doctors, all surgeons, and they hire me. And again, I'm not going to get money, but they go, this is crazy. Why would we pay you this? This is more than a surgeon makes. And what do you say? Say, do you know why? How many surgeons are in your organization? And they give a number and I go, do you know how many people do what I do in the world? Divide that number by a hundred. Like that's how many. So it's the same as a basketball. There's LeBron gets paid what he gets paid because people are willing to watch him. And because he's the best at doing this one thing, does throwing a basket through a hoop justify that amount of money versus somebody who's saving your life by cutting a small artery in your heart? I don't know. The proof's in the pudding. The proof's in the hard ticket sales because LeBron James teams sell out more NBA games than any other team. Right. Whatever team he's on, he sells more tickets than anybody else. Sure. Hard ticket. Why do you think LeBron James teams are always playing on Christmas Day, Labor Day, Thanksgiving? Hard ticket money. It's the way it always is. And that's what's going to take you to the promised land. As always, this has been Industry Standard with me, Barry Katz. And if you like the show, tell all your friends. And if you don't like the show, tell all your friends. You get all the money. Drop that fancy car. All the people love you. Because you're going far. Life is for the dreamers They have all to gain It's never quite over 
for listening to Industry Standard with Barry Katz. If you'd like more info on our schedule of new episodes or how to reach Barry through Twitter, Facebook, or email, go to barrykatz.com. Before you leave, please take a moment to subscribe to our podcast, leave a comment, and rate it, even if you think it blows. Thank you for your support, and have a great day. Hey, everybody. Let me remind you one more time about my new blueprint for success. It's a project I've spent months and months working on just to help you jumpstart your comedy career and beat the competition. Whether you want to do stand-up, sketch, improv, acting, writing, producing, directing, radio, social media influencing, or even if you want a career behind the scenes as a manager or agent, Blueprint for Success will give you all the tools you need to take your career to the highest levels. With exclusive interviews, my top 50 commercial-free episodes from Industry Standard, one-on-one coaching with me, and unprecedented access into my knowledge and experience from over 40 years in this crazy business. I guarantee you that with Blueprint for Success, you'll become the creator you've always dreamed of becoming. No one's asking me to do this. I want to do it because I want to help you become truly undeniable. So just go to barrycats.com, click on Blueprint for Success, and start your incredible journey today. I truly can't wait to work with you to help you change the trajectory of your comedy career forever.